It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Stuart Vaughn. I'm Martha McCallum. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, February 23rd, 2024. I'm Chris Foster. South Carolina's Republican primaries tomorrow. If former Governor Nikki Haley can't make it there, can she make it anywhere? I very much get the feeling from the Haley camp that their argument is going to be, we're going to continue to rack up delegates. If something actually does sideline President Trump at some point, we're going to have the best argument for being the next one in line. We're speaking with Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Defiance, fighting, throwing things, failing to learn. Teachers say they're alarmed. And one school committee is asking for the National Guard in their state to help. The National Guard was our request to get a quick and immediate action because I don't want to have something tragic happen and we didn't take any action. And I'm Joe Concha. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Nikki Haley's been crisscrossing her home state, South Carolina, campaigning for tomorrow's presidential primary, saying this week she's not dropping out of the race, win or lose, and feels no need to kiss Donald Trump's ring. Many of the same politicians who now publicly embrace Trump privately dread him. They know what a disaster he's been and will continue to be for our party. They're just too afraid to say it out loud. Trump during a Fox News town hall in South Carolina. She's not working. She's here. She's down by 30, 35 points. And everybody knows her. You're not supposed to lose your home state. Shouldn't happen anyway. And she's losing it big. Big. I mean, really, uh, I said big Lee and big Lee. (laughs) Haley says there are plenty of votes and delegates left to win. They're really telegraphing. We're going ahead to Super Tuesday. We're going beyond. This is not a coronation. Fox News Sunday and Living the Bream podcast host Shannon Bream. And we don't just let two states decide for the rest of the country. So that's been their line. Uh, I think they know it's not going to be fun on Saturday, but they're going to take their medicine. They know it's coming and they're going to keep moving. Well, you've mentioned before, I think it was you who pointed out that it's a take. It's a winner take all state. So if she loses 51-49 then she spent all this time and money. But what are you going to do? I mean, you can't just give up on your home state. It, well, yeah, you, it's a it's a painful part of the process. She will have to walk through to get to those other proportional states where she says she's going to pick up delegates. And that's the case in these proportional states. If she's in through Super Tuesday, um, I very much get the feeling from the Haley camp that their argument is going to be, we're going to continue to rack up delegates if something actually does sideline President Trump at some point. We're going to have the best argument for being the next one in line. Right. Now, I think it would be a free-for-all at the convention, and she would not be a shoe in if that happened. Right. But I think they feel like she's got the best argument if she stays in and keeps collecting whatever she can get. Sure. there has no, I looked it up. There hasn't been a nominee, an eventual nominee from either party who didn't win their home states in 72. Mm-hmm. That was George McGovern. Uh, Democrat lost in South Dakota and then got smoked by Nixon in November. So I mean, historically, it's a long shot, but it's a but like we've talked about, it's it's a weird it's a weird year. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk about this Alabama embryo case because I know you've yes. covered it some. Uh, it's very interesting and could have a lot of implications. Already, some families trying to have kids through IVF in Alabama are in limbo. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those slippery slope things that that people talked about when Roe versus Wade went down. 
Yeah, and the thing is, this decision is relatively narrow. Um, it allows these three couples whose embryos were accidentally destroyed at a lab to sue under an 1872 law in Alabama that allows parents to have a cause of action for suing for the death of a minor child. Now, the language in this is what really scares a lot of people, whether it's, you know, in the fertility field or in the um, pro-choice field, because um, what the, the justice who wrote for the majority said basically that that law applies to all unborn children regardless of their location, meaning they're in the womb, they're not in the womb. If it's an embryo, they're going to say that Alabama law recognizes that as a child. Now, remember, in 2018, they amended their state constitution, probably looking ahead to a lot of these abortion battles and other things. It's amended to say the policy of this state is to ensure the protection of the rights of unborn children. So now when you say an embryo is unborn child, um, it raises a lot of questions for these IVF clinics and places that where there are, by all accounts, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or more embryos that are discarded every year, um, will they face some liability now? A lot of them have paused their operations until they figure that out. Yeah, I mean, I guess theoretically you could just, <laughs> you could keep the embry- embryos frozen forever and ever and ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are questions about whether they could be donated right. um, without their consent, which they obviously can't have. Mm-hmm. Um, whether they can be sent to other states to, you know, where whatever happens, happens. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I can see that probably one of the toughest, most obvious things to happen would be if you have a mother and a father that have conceived these embryos together with their specific genetic material. And then one of them decides they don't want to move forward. Um, will they have a right to destroy that embryo or discard it, say if they break up, they don't want to have a baby? Um, or will the other parent who wants to bring that embryo possibly to try to bring it to a full-term pregnancy, will they have a cause of action then to go to court and say, hey, I'm going to sue you, mother or father, because I actually believe this is a child and I want to keep it? Um, I think that's the most pressing, obvious thing that may happen in Alabama. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned Roe versus Wade, but it's not really... Reverse weight is a factor in that that kind of started the ball the ball rolling with these changes. But it, like you said, it's a state law and it can't be appealed to anybody. Mm-hmm. That that was it. The Alabama, the Alabama Supreme Court said it's this is the way it is. Yeah, I mean, I can see an attempt to get it to the to the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, they can take up state Supreme Court actions, and um, we know how hard it is to get an appeal taken up at the Supreme Court. Um, and I doubt this is the kind of thing they'd want to wade into. Um, it would take four votes um, in their private conference to get to it, and and that's a really high bar. So I just don't know where you go next. Uh, Nikki Haley's been trying to straddle the fence on this, like she has on abortion the whole time. So it's sort of the mm-hmm. same thing. She thinks an embryo is a baby, she says, but she doesn't necessarily agree with this ruling. Um, but like abortion, she says it's a sensitive personal issue that needs to be handled with more grace than we're handling it. Yeah, and I think that's been her line all along. I think it works for her, too, in many ways because she's a woman. She's been open and has talked about her own struggles with fertility and the efforts that she had to make to have her two children, her son and daughter. So I think for her, when she talks about the embryo, she's walked through this path. We don't exactly what her fertility um, issues were, but she's been open that they were a part of her life and part of her getting to have her kids. And so um, I think as a woman, she is able to say, hey, let's not beat up the woman who finds herself with an unplanned pregnancy. Let's figure this out and how we can meet the needs of mother and child if possible. So she's got a different way of talking about this that. Um, you know, a lot of folks that we talk to, uh, you know, in New Hampshire and Iowa and just kind of out in the field, people feel like she has a better grasp of the conversation. It has now been a week uh, since former President Trump was fined 
around $355 million for business fraud, uh, but it's actually more than that with interest, and that keeps accruing. Now, he says he has the cash to cover it. I think he's got less than, well, he's got less than a month now, and he has to cover it pending appeal. Uh, can you imagine if he doesn't and Trump Tower is seized, for example? Oh, boy. Um, you know, imagine showing up there and you're now taking Trump off the building. I mean, the thing that in New York, I mean, his brand, he's going to argue, is what makes these buildings interesting and valuable. But you're going to strip them of anything that has to do with Trump and actually take over the building. Uh, what does that mean for all the people who live there and work there? And I mean, how exactly would this work? And the fact that you have to come up with such a bond or bail or whatever it is, um, a portion of the damages against you before you can even appeal to a lot of people seems sort of outrageous because then, you know, a trial court judge can set an astronomical price that the average person could not possibly meet. And then you have no way to go appeal this. It sounds a little bit like, you know, justice denied uh, to some folks. And so we'll see. But the actual seizing of his buildings, I think, would ratchet this to a whole nother level. And again, Feed into his argument that the establishment, uh, that everybody's against him. They weren't. They loved Trump in New York and what he was doing there um, before he ever got into politics. But he's going to argue the minute I became a Republican and had, you know, conservative policies and those kinds of things, everyone turned on me in the business community and beyond. And you do have people who are now speaking out saying we're going to think twice about doing business in New York. Um, There are a lot of, um, you know, unintended consequences, possibly. All right. Slamming through the news. In this segment, uh, the president's brother, James Biden, testified for this uh, for the House impeachment inquiry. Do we know how much about was said? Uh, we know his opening statement. It was behind closed doors. Do we know if Republicans have any more ammunition? Well, what we know is what we expected is that you have folks coming out like um, Congressman Jamie Raskin, Democrat, who, you know, brought the impeachment case, led the impeachment case against President Trump, saying there was nothing there. These people are waiting for, you know, a smoking gun. There just wasn't one. Um, James told us everything he said before, that there was no influence, there was no improper mingling of public and private businesses or interests. But then you have Republicans coming out saying he told us things that were inconsistent with previous statements. So they're saying essentially he was lying then or lying now. And so there is some daylight there between what he said previously and now. So they they're hinting at we're not getting the full story from him. Is he being openly deceptive? Um, Republicans are, are opening that door and saying it appears so. And now you get this FBI informant we haven't had a chance to talk about who was arrested and accused of lying about the Bidens and saying he got dirt from people tied to Russian intelligence. The Republicans behind impeachment, though, say, look, we've got other evidence anyway, uh, mm-hmm. at least enough to keep the issue alive. Yeah, that's what they say. And, you know, uh, Congressman Byron Donalds, he's one of the ones out there. I mean, he's worked in finance for a long time who has pointed to a number of different companies. He's, you know, his accusation is you don't have all of these shell companies and all of these diversions and all of these channels um, uh, of funding flowing to all these different people. If everything's on the up and up, I mean, he he feels like they've been able to look at enough suspicious activity reports that have come in from banks that they think there's something there. Comer says they have plenty of stuff that isn't just pegged to this FBI informant. But this is raising so many other questions like, why did the FBI pay this guy? Why did they say he was reliable? I mean, at what point did they figure out he wasn't reliable? And it's just a big mess. I mean, again, you've got Jamie Raskin out there saying it's time for this impeachment case to be over. It's completely fallen apart and Republicans insisting that they have enough to proceed. Now, they've got to convince their own caucus first. They have such a tiny majority. They cannot put this impeachment thing to a vote at some point if they don't feel like they've got enough to convince their own members because they will get zero Democrat votes. All right, one more. Uh, President Biden was told no 
by the Supreme Court to his big student loan mm-hmm. uh, forgiveness program. But he's just keep they keep chipping away. They just keep, you know, mm-hmm. doing what he can do with rule changes. He says it's about fairness. Some people are going to say, look, you're just trying to buy votes with taxpayer money. Got any thoughts? Yeah, the Supreme Court said you can't just unilaterally do the sweeping change, forgive all of the stuff, and just big blanket changes to policy. But what they are now arguing is we're doing very targeted, very specific things that could have been maximized. We didn't fully maximize them. So it's not just a broad brush. We're forgiving everybody. We're doing very targeted programs for teachers, for first responders, for people who have paid um, without breaks for 20 years, that have had been, been good customers, that kind of thing. Um, but the funny thing is, it does feel like election year politics. Even the Washington Post called out some of this student loan forgiveness, saying it's obvious pandering to like younger voters. But a lot of what they're doing right now isn't hitting younger voters. And so you still have these young TikTok generation, people who want their student loans forgiven, who it's not trickled to them quite yet. So they see it happening, but they feel like, why is it not helping me? So... You know, the Biden administration puts out this big headline, student loan forgiveness. But for a lot of people, they realize it doesn't yet apply to them anyway. And we know he's having a tough time with young voters who don't like what's happening in Gaza. They don't think he's been forceful enough on talking about Palestinian lives. And so um, he's got some trouble with the youngsters. We got through a lot today, Shannon. Thank you. We did, Chris. Uh, Fox News Sunday host and Live in the Bream podcast host, Shannon Bream. See ya. Thanks, Chris. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Emily Campagno, host of the Fox True Crime Podcast. In 1996, 19-year-old co-ed Kristen Smart went missing after attending a college party over Memorial Day weekend at Cal Poly. Over the course of two decades, a search for answers ensued. This week, I'm joined by retired San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Detective Clint Cole as he reflects on his time as lead investigator with the case. Available now on Apple, Spotify, and foxnewspodcasts.com. This is Joe Concha with your Fox News commentary coming up. A 15-year-old student was stabbed to death at Southeast Raleigh High School during a fight last fall in North Carolina. A teacher was knocked unconscious while trying to resolve a dispute at Flint Southwestern Academy last fall when a girl threw a chair at a teacher's head. A teenager at Perky Omen Valley High in Pennsylvania was badly injured during a fight last fall. Her friend said she roamed the halls looking for help, but no adults were found. These are just a few of the incidents happening at our nation's high schools. Mark Richardson is a high school teacher at Brockton High in Massachusetts. He told the school committee earlier this month the disrespect and violence is out of control. Just today when I told the student he was not a Yellow House student and therefore could not be in the cafeteria, he screamed at me, who are you to tell me what to do? This was a 14-year-old freshman, followed by a stream of profanity that I obviously will not repeat here. The sad thing is this happens every day at the high school. Who among you wants to be subjected to that kind of verbal abuse on a daily basis? He said cell phones should be banned, that kids are either on them during class or using them to film fights. Brockton High School teacher Julie Fairfield told the committee. And sadly, this year has killed me. I have this last month been one of those teachers that has called out probably twice a week. Now, Stacy McDonald, union president for the Brockton Educational Support Professional Association, read quotes from her teachers at Brockton High to the school committee members. 
Sexual activity in the stairwell reported it. I doubt anything is done, never is. Walking into my classroom in the fine arts building, looked out the window, saw our students letting three kids in the Azure door. Called down, reported it, nothing done. I was told to F off and mind my business numerous times. This is how all staff is spoken to. Four of eight Brockton School Committee members have now asked the governor to deploy the National Guard to Brockton High, the school with the highest student population in the state. It has an enrollment of more than 3,500 students. This problem just didn't start overnight. It, it, it wasn't just this school year. It, it's, it's been going on for a few years, but not to the magnitude of what we're dealing with now. Tony Rodriguez is the school committee member representing Ward 4, and he voted to ask the governor to bring the National Guard to Brockton High. Part of being on the committee, you know, the school committee, you know, at the end of the day or throughout the day, you know, we receive confidential calls regarding any major issues that happens within the district from students' fights or if an ambulance is called to a school or if a, a child or student or staff member is transported to a hospital. So anything that's real serious, the school committee is is uh, notified. But it, it's more of, you know, when we receive those calls at, you know, it's five or six o'clock in the evening and you're getting a list of students was, um, you know, removed or suspended. There was a fight here. There was a group fight here. Due process hearings are going to take place. And it, it was just, it, it just increases. And I'm just, you know, it, it's really bad. So then we got hit with the major deficit back in August where we had to lay off a lot of teachers, a lot of teachers. Wow. Uh, it was over 200 um, on top of just being short educators in the building. And it's district-wide. It's not just at the high school. So, you know, that gave a huge hamper on the high school where, you know, where one of the largest high schools on the east of Mississippi. Um, I mean, when I was in school, I believe we were just shy of 5,000 students. Right now, it's about 36, 3,700 students um, at the high school. It's basically four high schools in one. That's how big it is. Yeah. It's like a college campus. So when you have a shortage of staff, you're not able to hire, you don't have a, a, a long list of substitute teachers that you can call in, and then you have 20 to 25 educators, teachers calling in sick every single day, that leaves wow. roughly six to 800 students without supervision. And these students just walk out freely because we don't have the proper staff to make sure that that's not happening. But let me ask you, because be as a result of all of this, you guys, four of eight of you on this uh, in this committee, the school committee, um, decided to ask the governor to send in the National Guard. Um, and yes, we did. You've said, we're not asking for an armed force. We're asking for help, as you just alluded to, this the staff shortage. Yes. Um, why National Guard, though, as opposed to like, I don't know, social workers, or maybe calling the cops and telling them, hey, can you cite our students for truancy because they're at Dunkin' Donuts? Like, what? why was it the National Guard? Why, why, why did you guys go that direction? So the thing is, is when you look at the building, right, when you bring in the police, they're armed. The National Guard is not coming into the building. Armed. We're not trying to militarize the school. Is that the National Guard um, in 2021-22, former Governor Charlie Baker activated the National Guard, roughly 300. And the state used the National Guard as bus drivers because the state 
had a shortage of bus drivers to get the students to school. There's other districts around the country that are using the National Guard as substitute teachers because you need them in the classroom. So that's what our request is, is to make sure that um, that we have an adult, we have somebody that's in the classroom, that these students don't have the ability to just roam around because there's nobody in the classroom to supervise them. That we have door monitors with the assistance of the, the National Guard. With our, with, with dealing with the deficit and, you know, having a, a hiring freeze, we don't have the funds to, to, to go and hire a security specialist or um, extra staff at this point. So it's critical right now that, you know, if the governor can see the dire need um, to bring in the National Guard to support us, this isn't something that's long term. It's just to figure out how do we address the security needs of the district. You know, so the four of us, um, it just didn't start with just a letter to the governor. It started off with a request to the mayor. We had a, a, a meeting specifically about safety and security of the high school where we gave the educators, the staff members, um, community members, parents, stakeholders, the opportunity to come before the committee, the whole body, to explain in detail what is going on at the high school. And they did. And you've seen it. They were teachers. They were in tears. Some of them brought their personal, yeah. you know, they got injured, um, students. So, you know, when you look at education and you figure you have six to 800 students that are roaming freely and they're taking an MCAS test or they're taking an exam, now those students are being interrupted because there's a melee in the hallway or there's kids just running around causing disruption. Um, you have kids that are utilizing narcotics. You know, they're doing vape pens right now blatantly. Um, the cell phone is a, is a big issue because everybody's on their cell phone. That's why we're looking at the cell phone policy in depth to make sure that we address that. Um, when you look at the National Guard, a lot of people think like uniform, weapons. That's not the case. They are not coming in our schools with weapons. If they're in uniform, they're in uniform. But the thing is, is that when they're in there, it, they're highly trained. They're, they're, it, it's, you know, it, it, we're not saying it's a combat zone, but there are a group of students that are continuously making it a hard learning environment by acting out, disrespecting the, the educators in there. And it starts at home, number one. So we have to look at it. How do we hold these parents accountable for these students' actions? I know there's well, a plan in place. You, I'm just, oh, there is a plan in place? No, there is a plan in place, um, you know, to hold different parents stakeholders accountable. To, to hold them accountable and, and, and a security plan that's going to be laid out to the uh, to the school committee. So we just had to take the initiative. So that's why the National Guard was our request to get a quick and immediate action, because I don't want to have something tragic happen and we didn't take any action. Well, let me ask you to that point. There, there's a video that went viral a few months ago. I don't know if you saw it. Teresa K. Newman is a teacher who posted a TikTok featuring other elementary and middle school teachers talking about Generation Alpha. These are kids younger than Gen Z, younger than high school age. Um, and she highlights the commentaries from multiple teachers. And, um, and actually, she says this herself. I want you to take a listen to this. Gen Alpha have been raised to believe that they are grown folks, that they can speak to whoever they want, however they want, that violence is the answer, 
most importantly, they are being conditioned to believe that they are immune to consequences. She posits maybe it's COVID, maybe it's iPads, but that parents need to be held accountable here. What do you think is broadly happening? Because um, not just your school, but what do you think the reasoning is behind this? I truly, truly agree. Um, parents do need to be accountable. There's a lot of variables. COVID, what you ended up happening is that these, you know, these young children were out of school for, you know, two years and they were in front of a monitor. And some some parents would leave these children to be in front of a monitor and walk away while they're trying to get their, you know, their proper education time. Who knows what these kids are doing at that time? Surfing the web. Um, there has to be a lot of hands on deck to to address this because, it, like I said, it, it, it's national where you see these students is like how are they getting this information? Like you know, you're you're in the the fourth grade and you're you're, you're speaking a certain way and you're challenging. So this is all things that they're seeing um, within the social media content and and whatever you know whatever their parents allowing them to to view on television. It's very mm-hmm. concerning. You figure like, okay, we just suspended these ten students. It's the problem's gonna, you know, you know, alleviate because they're the problematic kid, but it still continues. It's like it's just yeah, being passed down. I guess what my you know? what would you what would you want to have happen then? Because let's say the national guard comes in, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe the governor says no, we're not gonna we're not gonna do that. But you you, you have some course of action here. The governor will we'll wait and see if she responds. You need a response, some kind of response. Yes, we do. We 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 need a a, a quick response. Um, what it all falls under is to properly fund our education system, which it's it hasn't been funded. It's just been cuts after cuts after cuts, and that's the root of the problem. So you know you have to have the proper staffing level to make sure you you can't give these students the ability to just you know sit in a cafeteria. You know, I received a phone call early on. In the year, you know, a female student at the high school, junior at that, that, you know, she basically went to school for the whole day and she just sat in the cafeteria for the whole day because none of her educators were in the building. They were all out sick and there was nobody to cover the classroom. So that's a huge disservice that we did to that child. And that's only one child. Um, How many more are out there that that we don't know about that are, you know, dealing with the same um, same issues? You know, we have our school principal that has to go and cover a classroom because she doesn't have enough educators in her building. And she's an administrator. So if something happens, she has to leave that room to go take care of a parent shows up or something happens. So that's where that's why we're requesting the National Guard for a quick and fast remedy. We're not trying to militarize our school. We're not trying to make it look like a prison is to make sure that we have bodies to make sure that the students and staff are safe. Ward for Brockton School Committee member, Tony Rodriguez, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And now some good news with Tanya J. Powers. 
get the bamboo ready. There's a new era of panda diplomacy in the U.S. The beloved black and white bears seem to be making a comeback after zoos across the country had to return their pandas to China. The San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance says it has signed an agreement with China Wildlife Conservation Association and has filed a permit with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to bring pandas to the zoo. San Diego officials say two bears, a male and female, are expected to arrive as early as late summer once permits and other requirements are approved. China gave giant pandas to the U.S. as a friendly gesture after President Richard Nixon visited the country in 1972. Currently, the only pandas in the U.S. are in Atlanta, but they're due to return to China this year. San Diego's news of new bears is good news for panda lovers nationwide. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. I'm Dana Perino. This week on Perino on Politics, the Republican presidential primary is heating up, and candidates are zeroing in on the Palmetto State. National Review senior writer Noah Rothman joins me to examine campaign strategies ahead of the South Carolina primary. That's available now on Apple, Spotify, and FoxNewsPodcasts.com. Subscribe to this podcast at FoxNewsPodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Joe Concha, what's on your mind? It's a question an increasing number of voters are asking these days. And it's a perfectly reasonable one. Who the hell is running the country right now? Looking at President Biden's schedule lately, the answer to that basic inquiry is as clear as the swamps of Jersey. In a recent three-day stretch alone in the middle of the week, mind you, in February, Biden was hiding with absolutely nothing on his schedule unless you count lunch with the vice president as something. But here's something more disconcerting. The commander-in-chief received the daily intelligence briefing on Tuesday, not in the morning, but at 2.45 in the afternoon. Maybe the thought process is that our enemies like to sleep in on Tuesdays. Or perhaps, and this is probably worse, the president needs to sleep in on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays, for that matter, most days of the week. Either way, this is beyond unacceptable, especially given the world is increasingly on fire right now and our border is wide open with terrorists entering by the day. The American press, with very few exceptions, fails to note this because it is an election year after all. Overall, we have a president who likes to take more vacation time than, you know, Clark Griswold, and a president who simply doesn't seem to want the job at this point. As poll after poll shows, almost everybody, nearly 9 in 10 according to ABC News, believes that this president should not be in office for another four years. Perhaps that's why the president hasn't done even one TV interview with a news outlet since, checks notes, October. And at last check, this is supposed to be an election year. Joe Biden believes otherwise. He believes he should be president. Whenever he is asked about his age or mental acuity, his standard response is always and creepily, watch me. We're watching, Mr. President. The problem is the American people barely see you. I'm Joe Concha. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. 
This is Jimmy Fallon inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.